0: Well, hey, friends, today we continue our journey through Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And if you are just jumping in, uh, one of the things that we have found is that the Sermon on the Mount, in addition to being one of Jesus's most famous, if not the most famous collection of his teachings, it is a highly concentrated, distilled version of everything that Jesus believed and came to announce. So it's kind of like his theology and vision in a nutshell as he announces what God is up to in the world. This is his manifesto for a new way to be human in the inbreaking breaking reality of the kingdom of God. And he's telling us this is what God is up to in the world. This is what the kingdom looks like. This is how the kingdom works. And if you were going to follow after me, this is what it looks like. But the way that it looks like, was a surprise to most of his original hearers and it remains a surprise and a challenge to those who would follow after him now because one of the things that we find about the kingdom of God is that it is an upside down reality. Uh, it, It often looks precisely opposite of the ways that this world works and operates. And what we find is that the kingdom is not coming to... you thought or through whom you thought because now in the kingdom blessed are those who the world loves to despise it is the great reversal where now the first will be last and the last will be first and what i want to look at today is specifically the dynamics of power power and powerlessness and how Power operates in the world versus how power operates in and through the kingdom of God that Jesus came to announce and to usher in and that will one day cover the entire earth. Now, I don't know if you saw or not, but uh, a few weeks ago, Vladimir Putin threw a rally in the midst of his war on Ukraine. And if you have been following The events of the invasion of Ukraine, you know that it has been an ugly, ugly business. Um, the people of Ukraine have suffered and continue to suffer greatly. They are a much smaller nation. They do not have the same kind of army, um, and size and resources that Russia has traditionally had. Um, some have called some of the, the acts in this war by Russia. Uh, As genocide, and there have been numerous war crimes already being brought to the international community. And much of the world has condemned this war in support of Ukraine. And behind all of it is, of course, the leader of this modern empire, Vladimir Putin. And just this past month, he threw a rally in Russia in support of his war, his, his invasion of Ukraine. And in it, Putin ventured to quote Jesus. And he quoted a version of Jesus' words in John 15 where he said, No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, I'll say, it never is surprising to me when people quote Jesus or they wish to co opt his influence for their cause. To this day, most still want Jesus on their team, apparently, even corrupt dictators. But what does surprise me, however, is when Jesus' words are twisted and used in such a way to suggest the very opposite of what he meant. And that's what we see happening here. Jesus said these particular words on the way to the cross, where he would willingly lay down his own life for others. Putin, on the other hand, quoted these words while he willfully uses his own position and power to sacrifice and take the lives of others for his own benefit, which is the story of human history. There is nothing new here. So one is a perfect example of how power is used by empires and their leaders in a broken world, east of Eden. And it is this power over kind of power, where those with the most guns, the biggest army, the the biggest bombs, they typically win, and they will often take what they can simply because they can. But Jesus, in his life and in the Sermon on the Mount, announced and lived an altogether different kind of power. And his was a power under kind of power, right? He announced with his life, his death, his resurrection, and the sermon that this is the way in which the kingdom of God works and the power of God is unleashed. And then, get this, he beckoned to those who would follow after him to pick up their cross and do likewise, laying down their preferences their resources, indeed their very lives and any claim to power they might otherwise have to lay down those things so that others might have life And this is this is the great reversal that is the kingdom of God. Now most of Jesus's original audience, struggled with this from the get-go, just like so many of his church continue to struggle with it, right? You can't just, this is why you can't just add Jesus like a sidecar or some Jesus sprinkles on top of your so-called American suburban life. It really takes a complete overhaul because looking at the world around you, you would never choose to believe. Like you would not be convinced that in the kingdom of God, it's the powerless that find their way Uh, as conduits and recipients of kingdom power, right? That the small, the weak, the overlooked, the walked on, the walked over, that these would be the people that get lifted up and honored, right? And so the only reason anybody would choose to believe this is because they are convinced that Jesus is Lord, that he is who he said he was and what the scriptures and, and witnesses of scripture affirm him to be. It's the only way. So we have to be fundamentally turned inside out our minds fundamentally changed. And that's, there's nothing easy about that. It takes complete surrender. And when you don't do that, it's, it's almost impossible to begin to understand what Jesus meant here. And this was true of Jesus's inner circle. They were there for so many of those moments we wish we could be there for, including the Sermon on the Mount and the miracles and so many other teachable moments along the way. But when you skip ahead a few chapters to Matthew 18 we find the disciples are wrestling and it's like they never heard what he said. In Matthew 18, his inner circle of disciples, they approach him and they ask him a question about power. They asked him, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? A question on the surface that might seem innocent enough, right? Like Jesus, how does it work? Like what does greatness in the kingdom look like? How do we recognize it? How do we live into it? Those all seem well and good, but if you look at the the parallel passage in Mark 9, we find out that that question that they give to Jesus in this moment, it was not birthed out of innocence. They actually were having an argument. They were fighting amongst themselves about who was the greatest, (laughs) which means they weren't just coming to Jesus out of innocence and curiosity. They wanted Jesus to settle an argument. And most of them thought they already knew the answer. They just wanted Jesus to prove them right. Who amongst them was the greatest, right? Jesus, who among us is the greatest? We will humbly submit ourselves to your wisdom. Who's the best? Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's the furthest ahead? Who's winning? Who's looming? Losing? Who's the greatest, Jesus? We, we got to know. Now, I'm sure that there were some who thought it was Peter, uh Dave Johnson rightly points out that Peter probably thought it was Peter. And Peter often comes off as kind of your typical leader type, right? So we've got good reason to think that maybe it is Peter. I mean, he's he's got a loud, boisterous personality. He's very self-confident. He's often amongst the disciples the first to speak when asked or called upon or to respond to a challenge when it's given. He was the first one to get out of the boat, right? He's the only one to walk on water. None of the other disciples did that. So he's got to be the greatest, right? Well, apparently not everybody thinks, though, uh, because they are arguing amongst themselves. And I'm sure some noted what happened immediately after Jesus took a couple steps in the water. Uh, He doubted and he sunk like an anchor Um, for all of this guy's self-confidence. Right. He sure is inconsistent, (laughs) very reactionary. Um, Others perhaps thought maybe then it was John who was the greatest in the kingdom. You know, after all. John was a part of Jesus' inner, inner circle. In his gospel, he constantly is referring to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. I'm the the disciple that Jesus loved. And we know now that these three remain, faith, love, and hope. And the greatest of these is love. So maybe it is, John, because we know that love is reflective of the heart of the Father and central to the kingdom of God. But then again, we're talking about who's greatest and who is the most powerful, And we know that some people who major on love really struggle to lead because leadership requires stepping into conflict and making hard decisions. And so maybe what we need is we need passion and strength and conviction, you know, so maybe it's James because he is certainly all of those things. But then again, again, we know those who are really, really zealous and passionate and have strong convictions, sometimes they're bulldozers and they run right over people. So, maybe it's Andrew, right? Who's faithfully serving behind the scenes with no need for titles, no need for fanfare, who just keeps bringing people faithfully to Jesus. Surely he's got to be the greatest, right? So, who is it, Jesus? Who's the greatest? Is it the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Methodists? Is it the Catholics? Is it Protestants? Is it the Charismatics? Is it the Fundamentalists? Is it the disciple who is gifted at being up front? Is it the one who faithfully serves behind the scenes? Is it the evangelist? Is it the preacher? Is it the leader? Is it the servant? Jesus, we got to know. And then we're told in verse two that in response, Jesus called a little child and he placed that child among them. And we know from the Greek that this isn't an old child. This isn't a middle schooler. This is a young child. So I think, just think somewhere between the ages of four and six years old. Jesus sets before them a kindergartner. And he essentially says this. You want to know? You guys want to know Who is what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like? Who is a conduit for the power of God? Who has access to all of it? Then I want you to take a long look at this kindergartner. There it is. Everything that is required for greatness and power in the kingdom of God. It's right here in this little one. And it's really important that you take a long look at this little one. Because as of right now, everything in this child that postures them for greatness in the kingdom, you don't have. Because he goes on and he uses a very important word. And he says this, truly I tell you, unless you change and you become. Unless you change and you become like little children, you'll never enter in and experience the fullness of the kingdom. He says you're going to have to become. You are going to have to change. From who you are and where you are right now, you are going to have to undergo a process of transformation. And this process of transformation isn't the kind that you typically think of. It's not an upgrade. It's not something bigger, better, greater, more celebratory, more noteworthy. It doesn't come with a bigger platform. It's not caterpillar to butterfly or ugly duckling to beautiful swan, a transformation that goes up and to the right always. Now Jesus seems to be talking about a very different kind of transformation here. A kind of becoming that involves a journey of descent. Now, one of my best friends in the world, Mike Jarrell, has a quote that I think rings true on this note. And he says, you know, you need to be very careful when you climb the ladder. of so Status, wealth, or whatever. Because as you're going up, you just might pass Jesus on his way down. And this seems to be precisely the kind of journey that Jesus is calling his disciples and any of us who would follow after him into, which I think had to be really frustrating. Right? Like, Jesus, I don't think you understood the question. <laughs> we didn't ask you who the cutest in the kingdom of God is. No. Uh, we we're asking about power. We're asking about greatness. And man, I'll just tell you, if it, as it pertains to greatness and power, and children nothing has changed in 2000 years it's the same back then as it is now if we're talking about those in this world who have the power they hold the power they can use the power they can enforce their power and get their way it's not a child because as it pertains to power if a child is if anything entirely powerless they have no authority they have no say so they have no independence. They have no ability even to survive without lots and lots of help. They aren't powerful. They are, they're needy and dependent and small and they're vulnerable. All things that if I'm really honest, I don't want to be. <laughs> I love my kids. I love lots of kids. I just don't want to be one again, you know? I love God. I, I do. I love to worship God. And most days, I'm, I, I like to obey God. I just don't want to need him you know cuz i don't want to need anything or anyone it's like nothing against god i just don't like to need i like being on my own personal flesh on a note i like being independent i like being strong i like being capable or at least feeling like on those things the last thing i want to feel in any given moment is weak or powerless or vulnerable but then jesus Our rabbi, our teacher, our Lord says, but you want to know what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. You want to know what true kingdom power looks like, who it comes to, who it flows through. It looks like this little powerless child. And then he goes on and says, therefore, whoever takes a humble place, becoming like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. He says the path of powerlessness is one that is not optional. It is a path of both powerlessness and humility. Two things that our flesh avoids at all costs. Now, can I just get personal here? And I am going to speak, obviously, from our and a church family base and our values and vision, uh, but I think it applies much further. But this is part of the reason it is so important to faithfully follow Jesus into mission on behalf of others, to refuse a life that, including a church life, that, that is primarily focused on me, on what I prefer, on what my family gets, on what is most convenient for our schedule Like all of those things, they just reinforce our own selfishness and they they take us out of the very places God wants us to be and to use us deeply in. Because one of the unexpected blessings of living a life of participation in the mission of God is that it will constantly lead you into a place of powerlessness. you know, I think I've shared on here before. Um, But for us, you know, as we get older, our context of joining Jesus on mission and, and his ongoing, unfolding, expanding mission in the world continues to grow. And one of the places that has become a new place for us is middle school. We have two middle school daughters and you know, as we were praying and dreaming of our home, being away from home for all these kids around us, we always pictured the elementary school that we've been so involved with over the last few years. But what we have been surprised to find is that now we have this tribe of middle school kids that, that essentially kind of live in and out of our home. And so we have tried to lean into where we see God already at work. And here about a few weeks ago, we, so we throw this big murder mystery dance party night. Uh, for a bunch of our, our kids' friends, and it was insanity. <laughs> it was a riot. Oh, but it was insanity. We had about 20 middle schoolers. Um, they all dressed up in character. Uh, a bunch of their parents ended up staying the night, uh, hanging out all night because we were having so much fun. And and man, it was it was nuts. But by the time we got everything cleaned up and we went to bed, it was 1:45 in the morning. Uh, the next day we were throwing a big Super Bowl party and that kind of with a different network of friends and that was started at noon and also went past 1 a.m. And, and because I just turned 40, it literally took us like two weeks to, to to recover from this. But here's what I will say. As we have leaned into mission in the context that God has us, powerful or capable or strong, those are not words that I would use to describe how we feel in any of it. One of the kids who is... Regularly crashed at our house as a kid. We'll call Gabriel, and Gabriel lost his dad when he was young, and he is the last kid living under the roof. And he and his mom uh, are very, very close. His mom is his world. And here, just a few weeks ago, uh, we got the call. um She doctors had found a mass in her brain, and she was being rushed into surgery immediately. And through a series of events, he ended up staying at our home for the next few nights, which is an incredible honor and a blessing. But here's this kid and it feels like the whole floor has been ripped out from under his feet and he's got nowhere to go. (laughs) He's staying with us in this emergency moment. And I'll just tell you as much of an honor as that is, how does it feel? You know, when you've got this middle school in the other room and, and he feels like his whole world is falling apart, he's got nowhere to go. So he's crashing on our couch, doesn't believe in God, and in fact is really turned off to the idea in that moment. I'll tell you, powerless is a really good word for it. It feels really, really powerless. There's another gal we'll call Jenny who also has spent a significant amount of time in her home and she struggles a lot with her 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 sexual identity and with body image issues and she is bulimic and we know this not because she shared this with us but because we've been with her in in space and in our home so many times that we've picked up on the fact that she's she's purging every time after she she eats and you know how it feels to be in this kids life and so long for them to know their creator and to see themselves through their creator's eyes to know For her to know that she has been perfectly and wonderfully made and that nobody can take that from her and that she is beloved and that there are people who care about her and that she doesn't need to do this, uh, it feels pretty, pretty powerless. There's another gal in that same group of friends named Allie, and Allie has lived a very hard life that she wears all over her person. She looks so much older than she is. Like many kids in our area, her parents are not around. We don't know what happened there, uh, whether they pass away or whether they're in prison. But her older brother has full guardianship. But he can barely take care of himself, let alone raise and care for his little sister. In fact, when he dropped her off here a few weeks ago, the last time she was over, he was so inebriated he could hardly stand. He fell out of the truck and had to hold onto the truck to stay vertical. And we, we tried to coax him into, into staying and to, to sober up. And what's even scarier is, of course, eventually he he drove her home, and for her to go home into that environment where she often is, is not fed and where she's not taken care of, like you know what that feels like? It feels really, really powerless. A couple of weeks ago, I got invited to a birthday party uh, by a single dad who's a good friend in, in in our neighborhood, his son's birthday party, and me and my our youngest Jackson. Went to it, and I got to meet all kinds of family friends, and Jackson was really the only kid there that was his age, so it was a big thing that, that we were invited and got to go, but I got to hang out with his family, got to meet his mom, and I got to meet his mom's uh, girlfriend or friend, I'm not, I'm not sure there, but she shared uh, in the course of our hanging out that she had stage four breast cancer. And about an hour to us hanging out in this, this bar and, and sharing a little bit of life and stories and laughing, she turned to me and she said, you know, I shared with you, I have stage four breast cancer. Uh, you're a pastor, right? Maybe you could, maybe you could pray for me. And so I grabbed my youngest, Jackson, who's seven. I said, buddy, we're going to go pray for our friend in this beer garden. Come with. And he said, why? I said, well, she's sick. And... I don't think that Jesus ever desired for people to be, to be sick. I don't think that was part of the plan. So we're going to pray and ask God to, to heal her and take that sickness away. And he said, okay. And we bounced out into the beer garden and wrapped arms around uh, the four of them and and prayed over her, which was this beautiful kingdom, precious moment. But You know how it feels to long for Jesus to break in and to take this sickness away and to spare her life, but to have no earthly power or ability to change a single thing in this life or to pull that off. It feels so, so powerless. And I mentioned the school in our neighborhood that has been mission central for us last few years. We love this school. It's a tough school tough school to work in and so we have been very very present there one of the most broken parts of our city is just over the hill it's government projects half of that community feeds into the school and so it is very diverse lots of hurt lots of brokenness lots of homelessness most of the families that live in that community we've met come straight from the homeless shelter and so we have worked so hard to be there to be present over the last few years and we have chaperone trips and we we set up a parenting program peer-to-peer and and we did uh, mentoring uh boys and girls who are picked at high risk from their teachers, and we mentor them every single week. We have brought in meals. We we have done so many things to try to be present, to love this community, these kids, their families in the way of Jesus. But one of the things, if you've ever worked in urban ministry or in a poor area, that one of the hardest and most discouraging challenges uh, to mission is the transience. And what we found with some of these kids, these families, we have invested year after year after year, and you, get, you start to see traction and then what what's happening is they just disappear. And not even the school knows where they went. Someone in the family loses a job. Someone gets busted. Somebody gets evicted or any number of things. And you know how it feels to, to pour your life out for these kids and these families who just could disappear at any moment. And many of them do. It feels very, very powerless. But what does that create? Well, at least in us, it's created a number of things. Holy desperation, a keen awareness of our smallness and this whole great thing that God is up to in the world, holding fast on a Jesus for dear life at times and a pleading with him to do what only he can do. And I'm telling you, friends, that is a kind of childlike powerlessness that consumeristic, passive, Sunday-centric, it's-all-about-me Christianity cannot and does not produce. Because if there's a word that describes not only most people's experience in church, but also their desire for and criteria in choosing a church, it's just the opposite, right? It's like, what's in it for me? It's comfort, it's security, it's safety, it's little risk, little investment, little change required. What's most most just convenient will cost me the least. And little to no change is precisely what you get without powerlessness. So, Hear me, if I could just be completely candid with you. See, you don't you don't need to follow Jesus into mission for me or any church or any other spiritual leader. You need to follow Jesus into mission for you and for those you love. Because friends, this is where we get changed. It is when we are at the very end of our virtuous rope. It is when we are stripped of the strength that we project in the world all the time, how we want people to see us to be. It's when we've entered into the messy lives of people that Jesus died for. And we are so in over our head and out of control. This is where change happens, friends. And and it isn't just where other lives are changed. This is where our lives get changed as well. And most people, I probably don't have to tell you, especially church people, especially religious people, they don't get this right away. And I think we can take some comfort in the fact that Jesus' inner circle of disciples didn't get it right away either. <laughs> because right after Jesus tells him, look at this child, soak it in. Weakness, dependence, vulnerability, humility, like you got to humble yourself. I don't need your power. I need your powerlessness like this child. But guess what? You know what they're arguing about two chapters later? They're arguing over the same thing. And now James and John even got their mother involved. They don't get it. And neither does Peter. Because when Peter is then later told that Jesus is going to suffer and die, And that all of his disciples were going to scatter in fear. Peter, in all of his self-assuredness and all of his strength, says, oh, not me, Lord. They might all bail on you, but not me. Oh, I will remain faithful. I will remain strong. I would never abandon you. And then, of course, we know what happens, right? Jesus is arrested, and Peter, in all of his self-assuredness, gets scared by a little girl who calls him out and who he is. And he denies Jesus three times, just as Jesus predicted he would. And what happens in Peter on the other side of that, that bad, that failure, probably the the worst, hardest failure of his entire life. He's shattered, right? It's the moment when he should have came through, right? Where he, it's the last moment in his eyes anyway, where he was going to be able to prove to his rabbi, be strong for his rabbi, be present for his rabbi. He, he failed in that moment and he's shattered and he's completely humble. His pride is destroyed. I mean, his presentation of strength is exposed for what it truly is. He is right in the center of his own weakness and powerlessness. And here's what I think. I think it's in that moment that now, after that failure, after coming to the end of himself, of being exposed, of falling on his face in the worst way, at the worst moment, that now, and only now, is he ready to be used by God in a mighty way. And incredibly, on the other side of the resurrection, that's exactly what happens. And I say all this in summary just to say this. I think it's when you and I are powerless or we're in the center of our powerlessness when we find ourselves feeling utterly powerless that it is there that we are perfectly positioned to be used by God. We are called to see the powerless to advocate for the powerless to learn what it means to learn from the powerless and on a personal level to minister out of our own powerlessness and it is that's a different kind of power. That is an upside-down power. That is kingdom of God power. That is a self-sacrificial power. One the world typically scoffs at, just for the record. So get ready for that. And it is a kind of power that almost always looks like a cross. Dyne a self so that others might find life. You know, I would even go far as far as to say this, friends. I think your weakness and powerlessness might be the only qualification you bring to the table. It may be your greatest asset in the kingdom. For to quote the apostle Paul, it is, I, I pleaded for God to, to make me strong to take away this place, this thorn in my side, this weakness, this thing that makes me feel so vulnerable and pain. And he says, but God wouldn't take it away. So I've learned to boast in my weakness. Right? For it is when I am weak that I am strong. So, friends, as you go out this week or today on the other side of this podcast, my prayer is that you won't wait, that you won't wait to feel strong or to feel qualified. Right? Because it is in that place, it's so easy to make excuses. (laughs) I'm too busy. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm not smart enough. I'm not educated enough. I don't know theology like this or that pastor. I won't have the answers to the hard questions. We have you no. Know, we have we have uh, young kids, you know. So we're too busy. Or we have older kids. We're too busy. Uh, we have no kids. So we don't have the natural connections. Blah 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 blah. No friends. no, you are right where you need to be. And the more weak and incapable you feel, the more ready you are used to be God, by God, in a powerful. Kingdom way. May you come to know this in your heart, mind, and soul, and may it propel you forward with humble courage. Grace and peace, friends.